This podcast contains adult themes and may be disturbing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. Class A Felons, B Films, C Cups. I'm your hostess, Paris Brown, and this is the third episode of our second season, Stranger Than Fiction. This episode is titled Truman Capote, The Socialite, The Shooting, and The Suicide. Before we begin, I want to thank three listeners for their five-star Apple iTunes reviews. Chidro, Sarah Miller, Nev City Cal, and Colleen, aka Needlepoint Goddess. Your reviews were just awe-inspiring to read, and I appreciate that you took the time to write such wonderful feedback and encouragement. I should add that I feature these reviews because they're extremely important to the podcast visibility. Apple and iTunes boost and promote podcasts based upon subscriptions numbers. Those who hit that little subscribe button when you search for the show, and upon the ratings as well as the quantity of ratings. These are the main ways that listeners find the show, so please subscribe, Rate us with five stars wherever you listen, and share the show with your family, friends, enemies, frenemies, whoever. We welcome them all. I also want to dedicate this episode to Morrison Davis, my great uncle, who served in the U.S. Navy and died on the USS Lizcombe Bay during World War II on November 24, 1943, at age 21. In this world's constant fight for democratic values, may your memory forever shine bright. One last announcement before we get to our story. The True Crime Podcast Festival that I attended July 13th in Chicago was a smashing success. There were over 80 true crime podcasters in attendance, and about 500 tickets were sold. It was wonderful to meet fellow podcasters and true crime podcast fans. We had several panel discussions and live episode recordings. Everyone was so interesting, and I got into several in-depth conversations and made new friends. Because of its success, it appears that this will become an annual event, so I'm already looking forward to next year. For more information, head to truecrimepodcastfestival.com or look for it on social media. In October 1975, Esquire magazine published a short story in its November issue by acclaimed author Truman Capote. This in itself wasn't a particularly noteworthy event. His hit 1966 novel, In Cold Blood, had first been serialized in the New Yorker magazine, and he had published many other short stories. But none had the devastating effect on New York high society, including a wealthy but ostracized widow named Anne Woodward, or on Truman himself, as the short story La Côte Basque. The title is the name of an exclusive French restaurant that opened in the 1950s on 55th Street, across from the St. Regis Hotel. There's now a Disney store where it once stood. It was a place to see and be seen, and it catered to its celebrity clientele. Some of these lunch guests weren't famous in the way that we think of celebrities now. They were known as society matrons, or high society. They were the wives of rich and powerful men, 
many of whom descended from generational wealth accumulated during America's Gilded Age. These women lunched every single day in what they may have considered their only true downtime. The rest of the day, they were supervising multiple households, planning dinners, devising ways to entertain and please their husbands, and striving to look perfect, absolutely perfect, at all times, even while they were sleeping. Truman cultivated the friendship of these high-class women, calling them collectively his swans, because of their gracefulness, beauty, and understated glamour. Lacote Basque, in a nutshell, is a tale of society matrons during a typical lunch service at the restaurant. The narrator, obviously meant to be Truman himself, is intercepted on the street and taken to lunch by an upper-crust friend, appropriately named Lady Ina Coolberth. During lunch, they drink, tell raunchy stories, and gossip viciously, as do many of the other patrons surrounding them. Most of the characters in the restaurant and those mentioned in gossip are real people. Jackie Kennedy Onassis, her father-in-law Joe Kennedy, Gloria Vanderbilt, Charlie Chaplin's wife Una, the writer J.D. Salinger, Queen Elizabeth's sister, Princess Margaret, the Duchess of Windsor, Wallace Simpson, and Carol Grace, the actor Walter Matthau's wife. The real identities of two key characters, however, are only thinly veiled in the story. The model for Lady Coolberth was thought to be either the socialite Slim Keith or Pamela Churchill Harriman, who was divorced from the son of Winston Churchill. A philandering husband in the story was thought to be Bill Paley, the husband of one of Truman's closest friends known as Babe, who was already dealing with lung cancer at the time and didn't need this embarrassing publicity on top of it. Truman practically didn't even bother to disguise another character he called Anne Hopkins. In fact, high society, upon reading the November 1975 issue of Esquire, knew exactly who she was, Anne Woodward, a woman who, 10 years earlier, had shot and killed her rich, blue-blood husband. After an inquiry, police ruled it an accident, but rumors spread, and her peers shunned her anyway. In La Cote Basque, Truman lays all the gossip bare, publishing many of the rumors and possibly his own creatively unsavory versions of Anne's life. It's believed that in October 1975, days before the Esquire issue was released to the public, Anne either received an advanced copy of the story or learned about it from someone. On October 9th, she killed herself with sleeping pills. The brilliant author of In Cold Blood was now, as gossip columnist Liz Smith put it, in hot water. Have your sommelier pour you a glass of cristal and put on your genuine pearls to clutch, because this is going to be an episode full of glamour, tragedy, and scandal. Truman's Background Truman Capote was born Truman Streckfuss Persons on September 30, 1924, in New Orleans, Louisiana, USA. He was the only child of then 27-year-old Julian Archelis Persons, known as Arch, and his 19-year-old wife, Lily May Fox. Arch and Lily May had a short, tumultuous relationship, mainly because Arch was a fraud and a grifter masquerading as an entrepreneur. On their honeymoon, Arch sent Lily Mae back to her family home because he ran out of money. Her parents were both dead, however, and three older single cousins were the heads of the family. 
Lily, who had quit the teacher's college to get married, now enrolled in business school to try to support herself. She soon discovered that she was pregnant, and she asked her family as well as Arch to help her obtain an abortion, which was illegal in the U.S. at the time. Arch stalled her. He was enthralled with the idea of having a son. Finally, time ran out, and Arch was presented with that son he seemed to want so badly. The baby was named Truman, after a friend of Arch's and Streckfuss for the family name of his current employer. Truman was a blonde, almost white-haired, blue-eyed cherub of a baby, who looked almost like a doll. Lily May doted on her child, but she had no illusions about Arch, and began seeing other men soon after Truman's birth. She would often bring Truman along when she met with these men, and she once had a tryst on a train with former heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Jack Dempsey, while Dempsey's manager looked after Truman. At other times, when Lily May and Arch would reunite for short periods of time, they would lock him into their hotel room at night while they went out, which traumatized him. When he was six years old, they decided to leave him in the sleepy, small country town of Monroeville, Alabama, with his mother's elderly cousins. The eldest sibling, Bud, was a recluse who mostly stayed in his bedroom. The eldest sister, known as Souk, was the only one Truman really liked. Others thought she was developmentally disabled, but she did the cooking, cleaning, and made medicinal cures from herbs. She also took time to play with Truman, and they both particularly liked playing dress-up. Souk would dress Truman in vintage clothing they found in the attic, women's gloves, fur stoles, and dancing slippers, and would lovingly remark, Don't you look like an elegant lady ready for the ball? The next eldest, Jenny, owned a woman's millinery and clothing shop. She was considered the head of the family and was a good businesswoman, but she could also be harsh and intimidating. The youngest sister, Callie, was obsessively religious, which often felt stifling to Truman. For entertainment, the locals would gather on porches in the muggy heat and gossip. Truman's closest friend was a neighbor girl named Nellie Harper Lee, who loved to play outdoors and scuffle with boys. But she and Truman shared a love of reading, and they would climb trees and read books like Tarzan together. Nellie would grow up to become known as Harper Lee and would write the 1960 Pulitzer Prize-winning novel To Kill a Mockingbird. The character of Dill is based on Truman. He would base his first published book, a southern gothic tale called Other Voices, Other Rooms, on his experiences as a boy in this atmosphere. And the character of Ida Bell is inspired by Harper Lee. Truman's mother would occasionally breeze into town for short visits with him. Lily May, who loved fashion, would bring new clothes for her son, linen shorts that buttoned onto matching shirts, all-white ensembles, and Hawaiian cabana sets, but they made him look overdressed in the country town. In addition, he was small for his age and didn't enjoy getting dirty like the other boys, so he was somewhat an outcast. Truman idolized his mother, who seemed so glamorous to him, so much so that he once drank the contents of a bottle of Evening in Paris perfume that she accidentally left behind. But Arch visited even less often, usually only a few days a year, although he made grandiose promises of taking Truman on fantastic vacations. In fairness, Arch was often in jail on charges that included writing bad checks and forgery. Truman soon learned not to trust him and his promises. In 1932, after being estranged for years, Lily May and Arch divorced. Four months later, she married Jose Garcia Capote, a.k.a. Joseph or Joe. 
Joseph was Cuban-born and was making decent money despite the Great Depression as the office manager of a New York brokerage firm. Lily May had been working as a restaurant manager there when they decided to marry. Joseph offered her genuine affection, a stable and comfortable home, and a good life. Still, she didn't send for Truman until six months later, shortly before his eighth birthday. Out of pride, Arch fought her for custody and lost. And, to add insult to injury, Lily May had their son's last name changed to his stepfather's. For the rest of his life, he would be Truman Garcia Capote. Lily May changed her name as well to something she considered more sophisticated and less, well, Southern. She became Nina Capote. Truman was excited to finally be a part of his mother's life, but she suddenly became distant and preoccupied with her marriage, nightclubbing, and traveling. Perhaps, too, Truman, who strongly resembled his father and often told small lies, reminded her too much of Arch. He also began to display temper tantrums. But more than anything, as he grew older, Nina became increasingly embarrassed by and obsessed with what she considered effeminate behavior. Especially irritating to her was his voice. All his life, Truman spoke in a whispery, almost baby-like falsetto. Truman's most serious problems stemmed from the prestigious private school where Nina enrolled him. His grades went down at age 10 when a male teacher began molesting him. Truman didn't tell his parents about this, even though Joe was kind and pleasant to him. Still concerned about Truman's lack of masculinity, even though he was only 12 years old, Nina decided to send him to military school, although Joe and even some of Truman's teachers pleaded against it. But Nina prevailed, and Truman suffered. The other boys mocked his voice and mannerisms. He also became sexual prey for several larger boys, and later said he felt like he was in prison. After a year, his mother sent him back to the private school. His grades remained poor, although he loved writing and performing in school plays. When Truman was 15, Joe and Nina moved to the wealthy community of Greenwich, Connecticut, although they were renters and not owners of one of the large Tudor-style homes. In a reversal from Truman's Monroeville days, he dressed more casually than his peers, wearing white t-shirts, jeans, and sneakers to high school, when other boys of the era dressed in button-down shirts, sweaters, and slacks. He was also notable for refusing to attend P.E. classes. Never growing taller than 5 feet 3 inches, or 160 centimeters, he was smaller and younger looking than others his age, but he was becoming outgoing and flamboyantly so. He began to amass a smart and attractive group of friends. Nina and Joe sometimes allowed him to throw parties at their home, and they looked the other way when the teenagers brought in alcohol. Some of Truman's friends thought it was odd, however, that Nina treated them as though they were her friends as well. She didn't seem comfortable in the role of a mother. Although her life now seemed idyllic, Nina began drinking heavily. There are different theories about this. One version is that she became bored as a suburban housewife. Another is that she knew Joe had begun having flings with other women. And still another is that she could not accept the realization that her son was gay. The probable answer is that her drinking was a result of all three factors. Nina began flying into rages, tearing up the manuscript of a story Truman was working on and calling him homophobic slurs in front of his embarrassed friends. Despite the extreme stigma against LGBT plus communities in the 1940s, Truman luckily and amazingly was secure enough to be open about his sexuality despite Nina's insults. He still displayed fits of temper toward his parents though. 
When Joe once mildly reprimanded him for something, Truman spit in his face. When Nina pathologized sexual identity by trying to send him to a doctor to quote-unquote cure the gay away with male hormone shots, Truman fired back at her. I am homosexual, and you're not taking me to Dr. Murphy, whom you were going to bed with up until two years ago. Nina slapped him in response, but he had the last word when he said, If you ever do that again, I'll break your nose. I'll do just what I want to do. When Truman was 18, the Capotes moved back to New York. There he met a wealthy girl whose best friends were Una O'Neill, the playwright Eugene O'Neill's daughter, who would later become actor Charlie Chaplin's wife, and Gloria Vanderbilt. They became close with Truman as well. This was the key to his entry into New York high society. Although most other young artistic types in 1940s New York congregated in the Bohemian Greenwich Village, Truman preferred glamour and wealth. He began spending his time at all the fashionable places to be seen, like the El Morocco Club, the Stork Club, the Oak Bar at the Plaza Hotel, and 21. He also began working as a copy boy for the prestigious New Yorker magazine, where he filed pages of cartoons and ran errands. After the poet Robert Frost complained that Truman had acted quote-unquote disrespectfully toward him, Truman was fired. He was drafted during World War II, but when he reported for his physical, the military immediately released him from service. Truman joked, I've been turned down for everything, including the wax, which was the Women's Army Corps. He then asked his stepfather to support him financially for a few months while he wrote a novella, and Joe obliged him. This would be his first book, Summer Crossing, but he was unsatisfied with it. It would not be published until after his death. He then began another novel, the semi-autobiographical Other Voices, Other Rooms that I mentioned earlier, and began submitting short stories to magazines. Women's magazines like Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, and Mademoiselle often published high-quality literature, and Mademoiselle gave Truman his first publication for a short story called Miriam, about an evil little girl. Other magazine editors were quickly impressed and bought more of his stories. By 1946, at age 21, he was pronounced the most remarkable new talent of the year. This was startling and unusual praise for a writer who had produced no books and only a few short stories. But it was largely because Truman was a startling and unusual personality. He made a few strong connections with well-placed people, and they introduced him around to celebrities, including Hollywood stars and other powerful people. He managed to impress, befriend, and amuse nearly everyone he met. Other Voices, Other Rooms was released in 1948 to mixed reviews and a commotion about the author's picture on the dust jacket, in which Truman, looking seductively into the camera, appears to be reclining on a chase lounge. It was the first time an author had posed in such a way for a promotional photo. This, of course, led to more national recognition for Truman. In 1949, Truman met and fell in love with his longtime partner, Jack Dunphy. Jack was 10 years older than Truman, with red hair and blue eyes. In all ways but one, their love of writing, Jack and Truman could not have been more different. Jack had once been married to a woman. They divorced when she fell in love with another man. He had had a modestly successful career as a dancer until he was drafted in World War II. He had published a novel that earned good reviews just after returning from the war, but would never be as successful as Truman. Jack was also antisocial and abhorred the parties and fame that Truman craved. Thus, despite their love, 
shared homes, and constant relationship, they often led separate lives. In 1954, while visiting Paris, France, with Jack, Truman received word that his mother Nina had committed suicide by swallowing a bottle of Sikonol tablets after a night of heavy drinking. Over a year earlier, her husband Joe had been caught embezzling and was fired from his job. For years, he'd been living beyond their means, and Joe was now broke. Truman helped them out, but Nina, who had loved her lifestyle, was desolate and embarrassed. One night, after accusing Joe of being unfaithful, which he probably was, she ordered him out of the house. That was the night she killed herself. Truman and Joe were both crushed at her death, and the two remained close, with Truman still helping him financially until the late 1960s, when they had a falling out. Like his mother, Truman had developed a taste for high society. He was not obsessed with personal wealth. He was interested in infiltrating the lives of the wealthy and getting to know them and their secrets. He imagined that his literary masterpiece would be a novel about the private lives of the very rich. He began surrounding himself with women he called his swans, women respected in New York society for being regal, attractive, elegant, stylish, reserved, and perhaps most importantly, the wives of the richest and most powerful men. His very favorite swan was Barbara, a.k.a. Babe Paley, a well-mannered, wholesome, and loyal woman who was formerly an assistant editor at Vogue and now responsible for anticipating her husband Bill's every whim. Bill was the founder of the CBS radio and television station, and Babe was perpetually on lists of the world's best-dressed women. Bill was known to frequently cheat on his marriage, but Babe held her head high and ignored it all. She rose earlier each morning than he to apply her makeup so that he should never see her with a bare face. Truman's next favorite swan, a close second, was Nancy, a.k.a. Slim Keith, who had come from nothing and was now in her third marriage after two divorces from Hollywood moguls. Truman often vacationed with his swans and their husbands, cruised on yachts with them, and exchanged life stories and confidences in their bedrooms. In 1958, Truman's most famous novella, Breakfast at Tiffany's, was published. Like Truman's mother, the character of Holly Golightly escapes the rural South and changes her name. Even their given names are nearly identical. Nina was once Lily May, and Holly changed her name from Lula May. They both pursue glamour in New York, but struggle with anxieties and failed expectations. Three years later, the film version of the book hit theaters and was a smash success. Truman was pleased, but confessed that he thought Audrey Hepburn was all wrong for the part. He had lobbied instead for Marilyn Monroe. I know his view is an unpopular one, but... I can kind of see his point. I've always preferred the book version of Breakfast at Tiffany's myself. According to Truman, he was reading a newspaper one morning in 1959 when he happened upon the breaking story of a family of four, Herbert Clutter, his wife Bonnie, and their two teenage children, Kenyon and Nancy, who had been murdered in their own home in a small Kansas town. He asked the New Yorker magazine to assign him to write about the case, and they agreed. He had an idea to write about the true crime in novel form, or what he called a nonfiction novel. The publishers agreed to send him to Kansas, and he took his childhood friend, Nellie Harper Lee, along to assist him. Whenever he drew stares for his dandified outfits and long scarves, Harper Lee would provide distraction with her charm. The lead investigator and his wife ended up becoming Truman's lifelong friends. 
While they were in Kansas, the two suspects, Perry Smith and Dick Hickok, were captured. Truman, who was interviewing everyone in town, managed to talk to the pair in jail. He became a welcomed visitor, got to know them quite well, and they confided in him. Smith and Hickok were both sentenced to be hanged, but a stay of execution ordered by the state Supreme Court postponed their deaths, and the conclusion of Truman's book, for five years. Truman, at the prisoner's request, attended the execution, and later said it was the most intense emotional experience of his life. He paid for both of their tombstones. The buildup of anticipation from the public worked in Truman's favor. For months, even years, people talked about the upcoming book, which would first appear in serial form in The New Yorker in 1965. He became a real celebrity in his own right. He bought two beach houses on New York's Long Island, side by side, one for him and one for Jack. He eventually gifted both of the homes to Jack. He also bought a luxury high-rise apartment in the brand new United Nations Plaza, becoming neighbors with Robert Kennedy and talk show host Johnny Carson. Tiffany Jewelers sent him a housewarming gift, a China breakfast set. But Truman quipped that with all the publicity he sent their way, it should have been a solid gold set. And finally, he bought himself a green Jaguar XKE convertible. It was estimated he earned $2 million, which would be over $15 million today in the first year of publication. Nearly every book review was positive. People from all walks of life loved it, and Columbia Pictures bought the movie rights. Truman had just created a new book genre, true crime. 1966 was the best year of Truman's life. He decided to throw a party. Not just any party, but the most fabulous party that anyone had ever heard of. The date would be November 28, 1966, at his favorite place in New York, the Plaza Hotel Ballroom. But even he wasn't brazen enough to throw a party to celebrate his own success. He needed to designate someone else as a guest of honor. He ended up choosing not one of his precious swans, but Kay Graham, the owner of the Washington Post newspaper. Truman had taken her under his wing after her husband committed suicide in 1963. It was to be a masquerade ball, and Truman invited 500 guests from every corner of society and the arts. Invitations were coveted. They meant you were somebody. Truman's party grabbed the media's attention and was known as the party of the century. It's such a unique social historical event that I think it deserves its own story to do it justice. So I'm going to feature it as an upcoming bonus episode, and we'll have that out for you soon. In Cold Blood brought Truman unimaginable success, but the six years he worked on the book drained him physically and emotionally. He had become addicted to tranquilizers and other pills and began drinking heavily. He began to grow bored with his swan's brunches, never-ending cruises, and their carefully ordered lives. He also became unable to finish writing projects, especially the book he'd planned for years about the dark side of high society. He had a title for it, called Answered Prayers, but little else. Finally, in 1975, he published one chapter, the chapter that appeared in Esquire, and his world completely collapsed. Besides the suicide of Anne Woodward, for which he was blamed, his swans recognized their own unflattering portraits, and were horrified because they knew others recognized them as well. Overnight, the Swans and most of their society friends refused to speak to Truman. Gloria Vanderbilt, 
the mother of journalist Anderson Cooper, that silver fox, swore that if she ever saw him again, she would spit in his face. New York Magazine lampooned him on their cover, in the form of a French poodle wearing glasses, snarling in the midst of a formal party, with the caption, Capote bites the hands that fed him. After Slim Keith refused to take his calls, Truman sent her a playful telegram which read, I've decided to forgive you, love Truman. But she still didn't respond. He did not comment publicly about Ann Woodward's suicide and his potential role in it. But his most complete heartbreak and regret concerned his best friend, Babe Paley. As mentioned earlier, she was dying from lung cancer at this time. She never forgave Truman for embarrassing her by writing in La Cote Basque about her husband cheating on her. Until her death, she spoke of her former soulmate only with loathing. Truman fretted and cried over his complete abandonment by his swans, saying, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. I didn't know the story would cause such a fuss. This is patently false, but Truman felt that no one else had his unique insight into New York society, and he had spent years thinking about turning those experiences and relationships into a novel. But he never completed that book. Later, reflecting on his relationship with Babe, he spoke more eloquently. She was one of the two or three great obsessions of my life. She was the only person in my whole life that I liked everything about. She was the most important person in my life, and I was the most important person in hers. I was her one real friend, the one real relationship she ever had. We were like lovers. She loved me, and I loved her. The only person I was ever truly in love with was her. She once told me that she had bought her funeral plot on Long Island, and that there was a place for me, because she wanted me to be buried beside her. She always said to me, there's only one person in the world who could hurt me, really hurt me, and that's you. And apparently I did hurt her, bizarre and ridiculous as it seems. But because I loved her, she was able to hurt me too, out of loyalty to a man who was so disloyal to her. Truman had lashed out at Babe's husband on her behalf for his affairs, and now he felt Babe didn't appreciate it. When Babe died in 1978, Truman was not invited to her funeral. To distract himself from his misery, he portrayed a comic villain in the 1976 film, Murder by Death. For the first time, people noticed the physical change that had come over him. He had gained weight and looked older than his age. His acting abilities received harsh criticism. Also in 1976, he was arrested for driving under the influence. Then, Lee Radziwill, another of his favorite society women, deserted him. She wasn't one of his swans. As a sister of former First Lady Jackie Kennedy, she was on an even more elusive level. Truman practically worshipped Lee, and the two became very close. He even pulled strings to start a Hollywood career for her, although she too proved to have poor acting skills. In 1979, fellow shock literati Gore Vidal sued Truman for libel after the latter was once again running off at the mouth and spreading false gossip. Truman was shocked when Lee became a witness for the case against him. According to columnist Liz Smith, Lee explained to her that she was, quote, tired of Truman riding on my coattails to fame, unquote. She also referred to him with a homophobic slur. Truman hit back at her in the press, and the case was eventually settled, but he was feeling betrayed and increasingly depressed. He added cocaine to the list of drugs he was now taking. 
1981, Truman suffered a series of seizures. His doctors believed they were caused by the drugs and alcohol. When he couldn't get his hands on vodka, he would drink NyQuil cold medicine instead for its alcohol content. His partner of 33 years now, Jack, was becoming increasingly distant and traveled for long periods of time, leaving Truman to fend for himself. He felt that Truman was beyond help and was unwilling to be dragged down with him. At one point, Jack locked Truman out of one of the houses Truman had bought for him. In 1983, an aunt from Alabama, still miffed at not being invited to Truman's party of the century years earlier, published an unflattering biography of him. Shortly afterwards, he received a second drunk driving arrest, for which he received three years probation and a lecture from the judge for showing up to court wearing shorts. In 1984, he flew to Bel Air, California, to stay in Joanne Carson's guest room indefinitely. Joanne was the ex-wife of talk show host Johnny Carson, and while she was no swan, she was one of Truman's few remaining friends. He was in the hospital three times that year, for a concussion after a fall, for blood clots in his lungs, and for an overdose. A month before his 60th birthday, according to Joanne, she entered his room and found him looking deathly ill. His pulse seemed erratic, so she wanted to call an ambulance, but he asked that she sit and talk with him instead. He didn't want to go back to the hospital. He spoke of that last unfinished novel, the one that was to have been his masterpiece, and instead was his downfall. He talked about Babe, his mother, and his cousin Suk, who had cared for him as a boy. His final words were, I'm cold. It was August 23, 1984. Doctors weren't sure what ultimately killed him, but Truman's biographer, Gerald Clark, believes it was heart arrhythmia caused by an accidental or intentional overdose. There would be no more wild, beautiful, or scandalous stories. He never ended up buried next to Babe. He was cremated. One third of his ashes were interred in Los Angeles, another third were given to Jack, and the final third Joanne kept until her death. When Jack died in 1992, his ashes were mixed with Truman's and scattered near their homes. After Joanne died in 2015, her share of his ashes were auctioned off to an unknown buyer. Joanne was cremated, and her urn was placed inside Truman's vault with his remaining ashes. A plaque was placed between their names that read, Beloved Friends. That was part one of our episode on Truman Capote and Anne Woodward. Stay tuned for part two coming up shortly, which will detail the shooting of Billy Woodward by his wife Anne and Truman Capote's role in the aftermath. That concludes today's blast into the offbeat past. If you've enjoyed our show, please subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Class A Felons, The Films, C Cups, or Twitter at Class A Felons. And please consider rating us with five stars. Source information and further reading is listed on our website at classafelons.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another story told with vintage flair and big hair. Thank you.